And welcome to yet another edition of Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories. Ladies and gentlemen, as we cover the campaign trail of 1972 and the 50th anniversary, as always, broadcasting from our historic studios in New Orleans is Magazine Street. I am Christopher Tidmore, and coming to us from the coast of Maine is the host of this program, Mr. Curtis Robinson. How are you doing today, Curtis? I am doing well. I can tell you the coast of Maine is uh, gorgeous. If you hear the roar behind me, it's uh, Memorial Day brings the motorcycles to uh, to Maine. And this is, you know, it's interesting, um, uh, guys on motorcycles, uh, or men coming uh, surreptitiously is sort of a sub-theme. While the book doesn't cover this, it is worth noting that as we po- the reason we waited to the end of the month to post this episode about May was the 28th of May marks the 50th anniversary of the plumbers, of the Watergate break-in. As Winston Groom's great character, Forrest Gump, put it, why are those boys uh, kind of lost with the flashlights in there? Has the electricity gone out? But sort of the electricity went out in American politics in a certain degree 50 years ago today. Well, you know, interestingly enough, studying 1972, I would say this, though, when it comes to Watergate, and I always point this out, Hunter was there. Hunter was in the bar at the Watergate when the deal was going down upstairs. And he was there. Uh, I've heard the story that he was there with Pat Buchanan, although I don't think that's accurate. I think he was there with a sports writer whose name escapes me. But he was certainly having drinks at the Watergate when uh, the burglars were being caught. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, I can't believe that more conspiracy theorists don't go crazy with that. But uh, there you have it. And it's... Uh, he said it always bugged him that he, he didn't like, you know, as he says, it wasn't his habit to go wandering the hallways seeing what uh, the cops were up to. But uh, nonetheless, he, he, was in the, uh, he was in the bar, a little piece of history for us today. That is incredible. I mean, so— He lived near there. He lived in yeah. Rock Creek. So he, that was sort of what passed, I guess, for the, for the neighborhood bar there. Really? I have to say, as many times I've been to Rock Creek, I've never looked at the Watergate Hotel as a neighborhood bar. That's a. That's I don't think anyone who lives in the Watergate <laughs> thinks of the, that, the Watergate bar as uh, as that. But uh, but yeah yeah yeah, we're uh, uh, I've I've really enjoyed spending time in May of 1972. Uh, for people who are coming in, we're we're counting down the fear and loathing on the campaign trail 1972. It's interesting for people who, who are remembering the book. A couple things, you'll remember that it's organized by month, and May is the month, uh, of course, historically, May is the month that George Wallace was shot. But it was also in, in his writing in the book, it's the first time he just goes what I would call full gonzo, where he's just like, here are my notes. And it's what he's watching on TV. He starts to piece together these things. And you can see that that in a longer piece or with more time, how those would have fit into a story. I can remember when I first read the book, I, I just, I just lo- loved that part. of. He hated that part of it, he would tell me later, but I just loved it. And uh, he found it interesting that when I read it as, as a much younger person, that that's the part I really, I really thought it gave a lot of energy. And of course, you know, Hunter always wondered what would have happened if Wallace hadn't been shot. We forget, but Wallace had won Florida, North Carolina. Uh, he won Maryland where he was shot in Maryland. Uh, I think on the fourteenth or fifteenth mid mid month. Yeah, it was it was it, it was the six, it was the seventeenth, and uh, it was I, I only know that because I just looked it up. So I'd, I'd love to say the, the wonderful it, thing. It the was a, 
But it was the day before. It was the day before the the primary, the Democratic yeah. primary, and so he won that one. I think he won. Where else did he win? He won. Uh, he won Michigan. You know, he, he's thought of as a Southern guy, but he won Michigan. And uh, you know, at the time, he had really backed off his segregationist rant, and and, and in fact, and I always worry that I mispronounce her name, but Shirley Chisholm, 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 is it Chisholm? Chisholm. Shirley said Chisholm. The first African-American woman elected to Congress actually went to Wallace's hotel room after he was shot to wish him well. Now, that's unthinkable now. <laughs> and there's, there's a whole subtext of counterfactual history that, that takes the fact that Wallace had been reaching out to black leaders in that campaign. And it, it's, it's, we don't think about it that way, but that he was trying to kind of repair his reputation and he wasn't changing his viewpoints. He was, he was, there was something very Trump-esque about Wallace. I mean, that's what, one of the comparisons we keep making, but that his sort of populist forgotten America, forgotten people, what would later become, you know, the sort of moral majority or whatever, that that was, that it, it spoke to a lot of African Americans and that he was, you know, there was, there's discussion, the, um, Assistant Attorney General, he faced on the steps of the University of Alabama. Or it was, the, the, I forget he was under Kennedy. Um, what was his name? Rassenberger? No, no, no. That's the guy from Georgia. Uh, well, you're yeah. you're the historian among us, so you, yeah, it, it's on it's on you. I'm never going to come up with that. Well, the reason why I say that is there was serious discussions in the Wallace campaign about offering him the vice presidency. The famous picture of the two of them facing off in the, on the doorway of the University of Alabama and that being introduced as his potential vice president. So that gives you an idea of what Wallace was trying to do. He was a very smart politician. Yeah, a little bit of rock and roll. That what, yeah. what, When he won, his last time that he, he won governor in Alabama was in the uh, 80s. early 80s, yeah. 83, I think. Yeah. I was I think the 83 race. And he had he had a majority of black supporters at that point. He had reached out and uh, apologized and sought forgiveness from uh, a lot of the black leaders that he had uh, criticized so much before. So it was just interesting to watch, you know, how he would tack. And he ended up appointing, I think he set a record for appointing blacks to his administration after he won. So, you know, uh, uh, Wallace, Wallace certainly an interesting figure in '72, and and Hunter writes about that he actually spends some time writing about the guy who was blacks for wallace who who was with him on the road when he was shot and um and, and talks about that you know at some length so so it, it's it's interesting to be back kind of in that time and and also to think like um well, it's hard not to look ahead because and again this is way in the weeds but for those of us who love the great shark hunt uh, the the wonderful collection and anthology for that Hunter did, the part that he chose to to pick from um, from uh, Campaign Trail seventy two is June. That's the month that he put into Shark Hunt, and uh, he used the introduction, and then then he used June because well, we'll deal with that next month. But but May and the uh, shooting, can you imagine what that was like? I mean, it's seventy two. Wallace is is a contender, right? Yeah, like it or not, Wallace got shot. I mean, and and it, it must have just seemed like, well, people get shot. Uh, the Kennedys, uh, uh, Reverend King. I mean, it was 
I, I just, it's, it must have just been a horrible time. Well, and and one, of the, it, it had become. The, I, I I don't mean to introduce a or, or to promote another media platform, but I've been watching the show, The First Ladies, and it's very notable that a little later than this, um, that uh, Martin Luther King's mother gets shot. It will, and basically, one of the things that happens in, in going to Ebenezer Baptist Church is the comment they said, "This has become too common. This has become we, we, we're we're now expecting." people that we admire to get shot. <laughs> it's like, and it's, it's a very weird uh, political and psychological time. And around the world, this is becoming commonplace. This is when the Red Guards are killing everybody um, in the government in Italy. This is about when Lord Mountbatten is a little later, but Lord Mountbatten is going to be assassinated in the 70s, and you've got all the assassinations going on by the IRA. There was something going on, maybe something in the air, where assassination was the kind of theme of the day throughout the entire decade. Well, I, I can tell you that, as, as I've said before on this series, and I've enjoyed it so much so far, is that I find, in a horrible way, I find it vaguely reassuring because there's always the feeling that, oh, my God, uh, things are so bad today. Yeah. And, and God knows they're bad enough. But, but it's interesting to go back and look. There's a part uh, that I, I marked. I, I stalled while I could find it. He's talking about uh, the the mundane part of campaigning, and um, Humphrey and McGovern aren't spending, you know, uh, eighteen hours a day uh, for the past six months shaking hands and going to these go out and meet the voters on their own turf. He says, shake their hands, look them straight in the eye. Then he says, and I found this very uh, interesting as we draw the Wallace Trump comparison that. Uh, and I'm quoting here, the only one of the candidates this year who has consistently ignored and broken every rule in the tradition po- traditional politician's handbook is George Wallace. He doesn't do plant gates and coffee clatches. Wallace is a performer, not a mingler. He campaigns like a rock star, working always on the theory that one really big crowd is better than 40 small ones. I'm like, well, there you have it. <laughs> and I mean, that, that's the, the whole logic of Trump. So for those occasionally follow what's going on um, with this, I do a radio show and I do a political talk show. And uh, there was a lot of what, after looking at Tuesday and the tragedies of Tuesday, of last Tuesday for those, the shooting at Robb Elementary School, but also the primary day. And pointing out that in Georgia, of course, Donald Trump did not succeed in taking down Brian Kemp or Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State he blamed so much for his loss. And so I, I kept looking at my radio partner, Jaime McHenry, and I kept saying, look, um, if you're looking at this from a – forget ideology here for a second. Aren't the Republicans better off with somebody else that reflects the, the policy and all this? And his answer was very interesting, and it relates to Wallace. Tell me another candidate in the Republican field who can pack out arenas for rallies on a phone call. And there are very few, oh, sure. there are very few politicians yeah. in American history could ever do that. George Wallace and Donald Trump are two of, the, you know, of a very small set, but Wallace could. He could show up in a city and 50,000 people would be in an arena or whatever it was. You know, and people downplay that, that business of a crowd, but if you remember the rise of Barack Obama, uh, he drew such huge crowds. I was in Denver for his first nomination uh, uh, and his speech had to be moved out to a bigger stadium and it was rock star kind of thing. And you, and you, you get the point that 
it's difficult to understand that that politicians can bring that sort of passion because you know let's face it it's a it's sort of like a uh, you know it's like book signings you're 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 so pleased that anyone shows up I mean people have other things to do rather than go listen to a politician and so it's always very interesting when someone catches fire that way and I I, I want to kind of the the candidate that there were two candidates that for the most part. Richard Nixon was always afraid of, besides the Kennedys. Um, and the Kennedys not being a, a small matter in this whole situation. But the, can, uh, the candidates he was usually afraid of were George Wallace and Scoop Jackson. And it kind of puts a different trend on the Watergate break-ins, because he, he, uh, whether at this point Nixon knew or not, he probably didn't at this point. He does later. He has the cover-up. The fear that Wallace could cut into the law and order idea helps motivate all of this. And yes, Wallace is shot, but they've originally tried to wiretap the Democratic headquarters early in May, and it failed. That's why they broke in, because they couldn't do it remotely. They couldn't do it through another part of the building. And this whole thing starts to go south. But it was based on a very legitimate fear that the political coalition that Richard Nixon had put to bar this sort of law and order campaign, the, the Southern strategy. George Wallace is the person who would blow it up. That they they, could, they didn't have a political campaign that really could take him on. They didn't know how to beat him. Well, there, there's that, and then there's also, I mean, a, again, in the uh, uh, through line to today, it's. Uh, you know, in May, Hunter writes about being in Columbus, Ohio, at the Neal House Motor Hotel. And he, he's, uh, as he put it here, listening to the Grateful Dead, sipping wild turkey, <laughs> and trying not to identify with a wino slumped in the doorway of Mr. Angelo's wig salon down there behind the stoplight. But he's talking about a McGovern voter uh, analyst muttering that uh, the election had been stolen. Yeah, I still can't believe it happened. Uh, says, uh, I think he's quoting Frank Mankiewicz, they stole it from us. Uh, we won this election. We had a lock on the nomination. We nailed it down. The bastards stole it from us. Uh, so, you know, I guess it's like sports. You're blaming the ref is like, you know, I guess the equivalent would be they stole the election. So it's uh, that that part of it's interesting. And, and I don't know if you did, but I had forgotten that Hubert Humphrey was still uh, – part of of the scenario uh you know because salinger accused the humphrey forces of voter fraud and and mm. uh, that didn't pan out and of course right after that is is when he goes and for some reason there's a picture of a black cat that comes out of nowhere and then he says you know at this point we were forced to switch the narrative into the straight gonzo mode the rest of the ohio section comes straight out of the notebook for good or ill he just starts posting times, you know, 1236 McGovern tents on CBS interview, 230 arrive in situation room with 20 hamburgers and receive $20 from Pierre Salinger. <laughs> it's just, it's just crazy stuff. But it was actually, that's one of the things I like about it. One, uh, for those that haven't listened to some of the past hunter gatherer episodes as we did, the, as we started on this trail of fear and loathing the campaign trail 72, the the essence of what Hunter manages to do with this book 
and with a lot of his writing, is capture the feel of a campaign better than almost any writer I've known in the second half of the 20th century. If you've ever worked on a campaign, if you've ever been around this, if you've ever covered one, you're, you feel the pulse of it by reading these passages. And um, that's why polit- you know, people in Washington think of Hunter as the greatest political writer that almost ever lived. And yet people, most people who are Hunter, Ga- you know, who are Hunter S. Thompson fans don't even think of him as a political writer. It's this weird dichotomy. So. It is. It's, it is strange. And I, I, think, I think May... Um, I mean, granted, uh, uh, as, as you would expect, it, it's colored mostly by the Wallace shooting. He talks about the Wallace's handlers uh, uh, setting up in uh, the pastoral services part of the hospital as his de facto campaign room on uh, uh, after the election. But it's a uh, very it, it, it's a very interesting month for for them. Then it's uh, uh, you look at the primaries we're having this year. And it's a little different because really you hear as much conversation about Trump, who's of course not on any of the ballots, as you do uh, any of the individual candidates. Uh, I will say that that Georgia race now looks as as interesting as anything we're seeing in uh, 1972. And by that, I mean the, the governor's race. Anyway. Uh, I, I would I would say both the governor and the Senate race um, because, first of all, let's start with the fact you not only have the rematch of, of, of Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp and um, Abrams to some extent Kemp does not have a unified Republican party like he did, did last time. But you also, you've got an interesting situation with Raphael Warnock and the fact that he's the underdog, but he's actually far more media savvy. He's having spent 40 years in a pulpit and coming out of the same civil rights groups and essentially mentored by Martin Luther King uh, and uh, uh, protégés out of the Ebenezer Baptist Church that we're, we're talking about in 72. It's a, it's a literal line of people directly back to this campaign. That's what makes it so fascinating. It's not like these people are those. Herschel Walker is a football star, um, one of the great football stars. But he's got their questions about whether his psychology you know, whether his, his psychiatrist has done anything, and this harkens back to, to, to the campaign as well, you know, with the questions about Muskie and all this. So uh, the more things change. Well, you know, I mean, when you, when you see that in May of 72, they were talking about uh, uh, one of the big, big things. He said, you know, McGovern was the candidate that was, that was for marijuana, amnesty, and abortion. Abortion was a big issue in 72, and, you know, here we go again. Yeah. But it's it's the the thing, and, and you do see a lot of the threads. A lot of the threads go back. Seventy two was a huge year for for a lot of things, and I think it was a huge year for politics. I, I will say that uh, for those who are reading along with us, and I've heard from a few of you, uh, that's that's what we'll say about May of nineteen seventy two. And I I got to say that I'm really looking forward to June uh, because it just gets crazier from here on out. And and those of us, I've used it in twenty five columns over the years. Uh, June is the section. I could be wrong, but I'm not. Uh, that has this wonderful scenario: what happens at a brokered convention when uh, you're one of the undecided voters, 
the guy goes out on the worst date in the history of dating. And uh, from that point, he, he, don't, he doesn't only have to deliver his vote, but, you know, 10 more. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful piece of speculative writing. And uh, uh, that, that's ahead of us for next month. I can't wait. Um, uh, Curtis Robinson, it's always a privilege as we, as we come in uh, and close out May. And, you know, the eventful May, I, I, I still think, though, while everything's going to come together in June, while the campaign is going to be formed going into the, uh, to the conventions, May is the month that changes American politics, not just in 72, but for the next 50 years. Between Wallace's uh, shooting and the Watergate, and the Watergate break-ins, which interestingly is going to be a comparatively minor part of the 72 election. It's going to come up, but it's not. It's really going to place in later. But it's the, the sheer events is going to change everyone's perspective on politics for the next 50 years. It still affects us today. So it's the greatest thing about this. I, I love Hunter's decision to run this book without a lot of retrospective or, or, or taking it and trying to smooth it out. I love that it's in real time. Uh, I loved it back in the day and I, and I really love it now because it, it really takes you back and gives you the feeling of, of being there. And, it, you know, it, and it's fair. I mean, he's treating things with a certain relevance and he's looking forward to this uh, convention as real trouble, you know, as a bloodbath, as he calls it. And if you remember that convention for uh, uh, Wallace, well, not so much for Wallace as for McGovern, uh, it did not go well. Uh, you made some mistakes, but I'm going to resist the urge to get ahead of myself <laughs> and leave it there, my friend. On that note, uh, we will, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you in the month of June for the and next. For, th- for those making travel plans in July, Hunter Gatherers goes live at Trails at the Cocktail. We will- on starts July 25th. And we'll give uh, more information later. For those that don't know, Tales of the Cocktail is um, one of the foremost mixology uh, conventions in the world. It's here in New Orleans. And it, it, it literally is almost like doing a guided tour of Hunter Thompson's favorite watering holes. Of which we will be doing <laughs> at this. We should do that. We'll do we'll do the Hunter Thompson tour. Okay. All right, thank, sounds you. Good. thank you, Christopher, as always. All right. Thank you, Curtis Robinson. And for everyone, uh, we'll see you in the next edition of Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories.